hello. Welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. I'm uh, your co-host, Ken Kranz. And I'm your main host, Chip Chantry. <laughs> so fucked up. Um, we have. Uh, I'm really excited for this. We have a. Uh, we have a great guest this week. We have comedian Ted Alexandro. Uh, your credits are are almost too much to name, but yeah, Duncan so in a bunch. in a bunch of times. You have a bunch yes. of albums out, and um, your new album is called the Lost Album. And That's right. And um, it's funny because Chip and I were talking just a couple weeks ago that we wanted to do an episode on lost albums because uh, there's so many like great, there's so many great legendary ones and some not so great ones. But um, a lot of terrible ones, and those are some of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Well, hopefully, mine uh, falls into the the former. Uh, it, you know, this was just like the, 10 years went by between my first and second albums and I was putting out stuff like on my Comedy Central special and on Letterman and Conan uh, and just, I guess, foolishly in my head, I was like, well, the stuff's out there. I don't need to put it out, you know, and this was kind of before the template became like, yeah, you'll, you put out an album, if not every year, every two years, you know, uh, this was like, I guess... 2003, 2000, you know, that 10 year period in between my first and second. So, uh, yeah. So then when the pandemic came along, I was like, you know, I don't have any excuse, man. Let me go back, listen to the recordings that I have from those times and put out the stuff that was on the specials. And then some stuff that I found just as I was going through old recordings, uh, stuff that like I forgot about in some cases, uh, stuff that, uh, I remembered, but just hadn't put out. So it's like a mix of kind of like greatest hits. You know, I mean, I'm being uh, kind to myself, but stuff <laughs> that I loved from from those years, uh, but then stuff that I discovered. And um, it's exclusively on Spotify, right? No, now it's everywhere. Oh, it yeah, is everywhere. Initially, now. yep, yep. Okay, there was a great. time when it was uh, Spotify, Pandora, but now it's wherever you stream. Oh, because I went to it on Spotify. I don't have the premium account. So I had to sit through like two minutes of commercials and then it, <laughs> and then it won't play the whole album. It just gives you like Ted Alexandro tracks. No, that's actually the album. I have commercials on, <laughs> on the album. Those are some of the I lost. thought they were hilarious. I mean, some of your strongest stuff, Ted. No, I mean, I hope that's... Yeah, but, I hope the satire came through. I was, I was it really did. Attacking yeah. capitalism and, you know, the man, all that stuff. Ted, I, I've been a fan of your comedy for, for many years, but I just want to say your impression of Jake from State Farm is just spot on. <laughs> really. I think yeah, it's, people, it's your best work. I appreciate it. Not a lot of people know me as an impressionist, uh, yeah. but that is my niche is like kind of corporate commercial impressions. Uh, I do a really strong um, Colonel Sanders, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, d different, d like Norm MacDonald as... <laughs> Hopefully, I think you're in the queue. You're in the queue now, which I think is important. Now, that did you did you learn a lot about yourself when you're digging through these old tapes, either positive or negative? Or I, I'm, I'm assuming you discovered some some bits and some material that you probably have just totally forgotten about. Uh, any anything that really surprised you about about when you were digging through? Well, you know how it is when you if you listen to anything of your own, whether you recorded it last night or 15 years ago. Uh, certain things are going to grate on you and, you know, mm -hmm. like you can barely make it through. 
But it's really the stuff that, you know, you can kind of go past. Like, I, apparently I had a New York accent in the beginning of my career that I, I've since. <laughs> some people have been teasing me that it should be called the lost accent. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, some of this stuff, man, was uh, went even further back. And, that, and that's another thing that was cool about it. Because I was going back, uh, I even went back before my first album. Because I, I, I distinctly remember when I was recording As Much As You Want, my, my first album, I left off one bit that was kind of like a signature bit. You know how like when you start out, you have like your your closers or, you know, you, the bits that you, your, your go-to bits. So I left off this one bit about being a superhero where, you know, I talk about being single. And I actually did this on Dr. Katz. It was one of the bits that, I, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to, to be on Dr. Katz, whatever year that was, maybe 2000. And uh, I, I talked about being single and people asked me, so, so what are you, gay? Which bothers me not because I dislike gays or think there's anything wrong but why does it immediately have to be that you know batman superman they were single you ever think of that right <laughs> right i might be a superhero yeah uh you know maybe my love for this great metropolis supersedes whatever petty need i have for intimacy so so this was kind of one of my you know early like finding my voice type bits uh and i forgot to do it wasn't a case of like i didn't put it on my first album i just did one show mm -hmm. and i forgot to do it so uh, like that, that bit was not on my first album. So I put that on the lost album as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, to answer your question, going through it was a mixture of like cringing at certain things, cringing at certain jokes that I wouldn't tell now. Yeah. Uh, but then also finding stuff that I really that I really love and also cringing at my, my accent, which is funny because like I never it's not like I went to uh, finishing school or anything. It's just that over time and getting out of Queens. Uh, I guess in traveling a lot, you know, like my accent got tempered a little bit. It wasn't like I went to uh, a coach, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and now, and, and you don't need to get into it. And I, because there, there's stuff that I, yeah, I think we've all, all done that you didn't think of back in the day that, you know, was cringeworthy. But like now you're like, you know, we've, we've moved on both as a society, as comedians, as people, we've, we've evolved. But, but you I, I think I've found that stuff when I go back, it's like, boy, I can't believe I said that back then and now, you know, but I think that's a good, I mean, it's growth is, is what that is. Yeah. I mean, I was always kind of interested in exploring like the taboo things, but not like in a way of like, let's make fun of the Chinese, you know, like right. I was interested in like, where's the line of like, clearly someone I'm coming from a kind of a, you know, uh, accepting progressive worldview mm -hmm. uh so i'm not going to do it from like let's make this person the butt of the joke i'm going to do it more from like i know this is taboo so how can i explore it uh so that the the people i'm talking about know that i'm not making fun of them i'm, I'm talking about more maybe more the dynamics of uh stereotypes or you know things like that so fortunately looking back that was kind of the way I was doing it, even even in the earlier years. It was, I, I wasn't going for kind of cheap laughs, so that that felt good. Like uh, it wasn't like I I, I made a, a one eighty and said you know left behind all my my race. Sure. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah, know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And did you find a lot of material that just was dated out that was of the time, whether it was you know topical or th things that didn't really make sense? Uh, well, honestly, that was another thing that was interesting about it. Although I did talk about topical things that were specific to the time, whether it was Bush, uh, Cheney, uh, Katrina, um, in listening back, I felt as though like it had the material had merit 
uh, it wasn't just this kind of ephemeral thing that was here and gone, you know, uh, like some cheap joke about Bush is dumb or Cheney is this or that. Uh, it was stuff that was kind of talking about the time and talking, you know, I just felt like it, the, everything I included on the album, I felt like stood up, you know, it wasn't. Right. And, and also maybe marked that time as well, you know, because <laughs> it's called the lost album. Right. Because if you're listening to it, you're aware that this is from prior. You know? Right. So, which immediately yeah, but, gives you a pass too on, on putting out an album of older <laughs> material. People can't be like. What the fuck's Ted doing Dynasty material for? It's like, <laughs> right, no, it's a right. lost album. Yes, yes. So it does give you cover for that. But that said, like, I listened to it. My editor, you know, uh, my wife, whose judgment I trust. Like, I, I ran it by people who I'm like, you know, this this is worth putting on, right? And I, you know, we're talking about 10 plus years. So I obviously left a lot of stuff off that didn't pass that particular test. Right. Yeah, I was listening to um, If You See Something, Say Something, which right. was so funny. But it also, there is, it's like the news is so cyclical. You can just sub out, a, a, you know, some last names and, and it's still fresh. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You know, uh, that it, it was in a certain sense, it was kind of... Uh, it almost kind of shed light on, like you say, this cyclical nature of things that we're still talking about the same theme. So that also kind of made me feel good. Like, all right, let me put this on, even though it's not going to be this name or that name or this particular news event, but the themes are the same. Uh, yeah. Like see something, say something in that kind of heightened, uh, like the responsibility of the public to report all the time, you know? Uh, so yeah, all those kind of things were interesting to see, like the beginnings of it in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. It's funny what listening to that track reminded me of um, a funny story where like the only time in my life where I saw something and said something, I ended up getting made fun of, but I was on a New Jersey transit train and I was sitting in the back in the quiet car and I noticed under my seat, there was a duffel bag and I was the only one sitting there and <laughs> it was, um, it was, I guess it it wasn't that long. It was, it was long enough ago, or it was recently enough that there was a quiet car. I was on the quiet car. And I called the conductor over and I was like, hey man, I there's a duffel bag under my seat and I just noticed it and I don't know if it's supposed to be there. And he started laughing and he said, no, that's mine. And then he was like, well, oh, were you scared? And I was like, <laughs> well, I don't like this. Is, isn't that what they train us to do? Isn't that like... Aren't I your, your last line of defense against shit? And then he like kind of laughed at me and walked away. And then, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes later, he came back into the car. This was, this ended up being my favorite dude ever. He came back into the car and he was like, Hey, do you have the time? And he timed this so perfectly because I looked at my phone and I wasn't even thinking. I was like, Yeah, it's 9 11. And then he just started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was so and then perfectly, the car exploded yeah, yeah and then we blew up but then he sat down and he started laughing and then i was like that's actually great like i get that you're making fun of me but that's so great and then people were looking at us because he was laughing so loud and he and they really was the quiet car but he was like i'm i'm the conductor they can't do shit so we just <laughs> sat there and laughed and made jokes i mean the weird thing is that like you're made to look foolish for pointing out like, why is he keeping 
his duffel bag amongst the passengers, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you could just, yeah, somebody could just steal it or, or take something out of it. Yeah, even if it's not like uh, a security breach, uh, just keep your shit in the locker or wherever you're sitting. <laughs> right, <throw. laughs> yeah, now I'm in charge of your ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, now, Chad, are you uh, are, are you getting out there? Are you doing shows again? You... I have not yet, man. I've I've only done online stuff mm-hmm. uh, up till now, which you know only makes you want to get out there more. Uh, right. But I I have a newborn, like a you know uh, yeah. almost Congrats, two months. By the old. way, thank yeah, you, thank happy you, Happy Father's yeah. Day. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, almost two months old and a uh, year and a half uh, son is the older daughter's the, the newborn. So yeah. Um, I've kind of just been in, in that whirlwind, uh, so that's kind of given me an excuse not to. But the first date that I have on the calendar, anyway, is uh, I'm going to be... I've been opening for Gaffigan for a while, so I'm going to go to Vegas with him August 6th and 7th. Uh, but I think I'm going to just find some kind of crappy open mics. Uh, we moved up to Connecticut November of last year, so... Mm-hmm. I'm going to just find something around here, uh, whether it's comedy related or just some like, you know, poetry open mic or some shit just to just to be in front of people. Oh, sure. Get the sea legs back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of I don't know about you guys, but I kind of like those in a way, especially in these circumstances when you're starting over anyway. Like it's to me, it's kind of fun to recreate the conditions that you actually started in, which is like nobody gives a shit nobody's listening really you know yes so. yeah yeah well that's yeah. that's me and chip started like that and have stayed in that mode <laughs> yes <laughs> we haven't Sometimes gotten out of that find, mode yeah, yet you, you find your comfort zone <laughs> and you stick with it <laughs> so are uh ted you're you're a big music fan yeah i was a jazz piano major in college oh, wow. uh yeah so that was kind of my thing for a while uh but yeah big i mean all kinds of music i was just reading that it's like the 50th anniversary of Joni mitchell's blue blue yeah 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 but uh yeah all, all kinds of stuff I, i'm into so you come from the musical family well i mean like we did like plays and stuff like that i'm one of five uh three boys two girls and like our local church had this uh, theater group like a summer theater group where you do like all the musicals that you would suspect like you know Grease and uh, West Side Story and stuff like that so that was kind of like for me like my earliest uh, performing chops of just being in front of people I would just go like to have something to do in the summer uh, do these plays so um, yeah and my, my siblings are pretty musical my parents though are, are not they were always like we don't know where the five of you came from you know but uh, <laughs> yeah we, we, we're, we're all pretty musical so lucky i I was i was a musical kid too my my freshman year of high school i was cast in bye bye birdie yeah man the classic right yeah and and i was cast as a freshman because i was literally the smallest youngest looking kid there and i played randolph the little brother so i thought i was i must be really talented because i actually got a part but it was like (laughs) 93 pounds so we can fit you in a boy scout uniform so right, right. Um, I did it, but I got that role and it's like my first big show. And, uh, within the four months that we rehearsed, I grew eight inches and dropped like an octave in my voice oh, and like, shit. literally could barely fit in the, uh, in the boy scout <laughs> uniform anymore, but somehow I made it work. And I think it was my, my greatest performance to this day. So uh, that's so funny, man. Yeah. That you would have your growth spurt, you know, well, it just speaks to your method acting that despite <laughs> your physical appearance, you still yeah. embodied 
that character, and I think the audience probably picked up on that. I, I think they did. The, the reviews came in. Just raves. Raves all around. <laughs> well, uh, to piggyback on that, I played Conrad Birdie. Uh, nice. There was like a local girls' high school, uh, the Mary Lewis Academy. So they need they always needed guys for their productions. So my brother and I went down there and and uh, we did Bye Bye Birdie. So I was I got to wear the gold lame suit as Conrad Birdie. That's beautiful. That's yeah, beautiful. yeah, yeah. My my ass looked uh, <laughs> plump. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so who are your big? Uh, I know your your jazz, you know jazz uh, piano player. Uh, who are your big? Uh, who are your big heroes? Your Mount Rushmore of any kind of music. Well, I mean, are you guys more of a, a rock leaning show? I mean, I I can tell you like the the guys, you know, like guys like Stevie Wonder, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just guys who wrote such genius stuff that stands the test of time. Um, but as far as rock, I think for me, well, I mean, you know, obviously the Beatles, great songwriters, uh, such different styles. And you have like really, well, three incredible songwriters and, and Ringo wrote some, some great tunes as well. Um, but as far as rock goes, I'd say Led Zeppelin is really kind of like what I, that's what I find myself just turning on, you yeah. know, the most. Yeah, Led Zeppelin was so good that I, I'm able, like, I hate Middle Earth and Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm able to get past all that because the music's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just even the fact that the way it was, the way they all came together, you know, and, uh, yeah, just the musicianship and they were like almost like the perfect, like, here's the perfect lead singer. Here's the perfect guitarist, you know, uh, drums bass like the all of them just like were this monster kind of uh hurricane you know yeah so those those guys are probably you know just the ones i i constantly go back to. you know how you go through phases mm-hmm. where you're in and out of stuff but uh yeah the, they're the ones that they're my go-tos yeah that's funny it, it has to be like going back to to do your lost album it's it's i'm i go through this too it's like every few years you you rediscover that's the best thing about music so you can rediscover it and and get excited for the same band all over again yeah at different stages in your life right right you're in those phases where you're like i'm i'm never going to stop listening to to this you know (laughs) and you all the different albums and then you do the the deep dives uh and you you know youtube and you find videos and footage and all this shit but then like you said you get you get out of it and then invariably come back around to it so yeah um but i have to tell this story my brother and i were big into hip-hop in our um in our teenage years Mm -hmm. and this is like the 80s you know going into the 90s and we wound up we were called brotherly love and not from Philadelphia. I don't know why, you know, uh, but we wound up performing at the Apollo. That was the kind of the culmination oh, of wow. the brotherly love story. Really? And you can probably guess how it ended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, that was our final gig. I mean, we had done like, we really had no business being there, uh, but we should have taken it as a clue when at the audition, their eyes lit up like, yeah, two white rappers. Like, yeah, you guys passed. Come, 
<laughs> right away, right this way. And we're like, wow, we must be good, man. They just they put us right through them. We didn't even have to finish our song. <laughs> now, now you're at, like, if you, let's say you did that now, I mean, you, you would obviously know and have, did you have those high hopes going in? Like, oh, this is going to be a thing. And like, how did, what did you sort of laugh it off when, when it happened or, or did you take it tough? Well, you know, it's interesting because by that point, my brother and I, if you've watched the Brotherly Love documentary, you would know. I apologize. Uh, at that point, we were at different phases. <laughs> he was, my brother, who's, who's honestly the better rapper. He's still a poet and performs and stuff like that. Uh, so he was more still invested in it. And I was kind of like, it was just a fun thing to do with my brother at that point. And it was his idea, like, let's go play the Apollo we had played like block parties. We had played kind of just local things in, in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like a lark. It was like we had been doing this for a while. But we we realized when we hit the stage of the Apollo that we didn't really have a stage show. You know, uh, we weren't <laughs> really built. We had recorded a bunch of tracks. We were uh, very much a studio band at that point. <laughs> and, and the Apollo crowd let us know that. You were, you were the Steely Dan of hip hop, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a kind way of putting it. Right. Yeah. right. They actually, it's funny you bring them up because they're, they're another of, of my favorites. I know uh, they're kind of polarizing, like people love them or hate them. Uh, but yeah, I, I do deep dives on Steely Dan all the time. They were great. Too. They're great, great musicians. Band. I mean, their studio work is, yeah. I yeah, said, and ju- then you just hear the, uh, the the stories of them bringing in these countless monsters recording solos and, and just being like, nah, that's not it. Or, you know, they just <laughs> discard or take a piece of something. Uh, yeah, I mean, just so precise, the two of them, just a couple of mad scientists. Um, so what we thought we would do uh, is talk about some famous lost albums uh, in honor of your lost album. Yeah. Um. Chip, you want to start with one? I know we had a couple. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start with one. And, and Ted, feel free to jump in at any point with your expertise or questions or anything. Well, and again, we're not we're not one hundred percent experts. We uh, we do a do a little deep dive and we try to find out some information. But we just want to uh, impart some uh, knowledge onto our listeners. Uh, the first one comes from probably one of my top five favorite bands, uh, an album called Household Objects by the one and only Pink Floyd. So Pink Floyd. They, they put out Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. Huge success. Just propels them to a different level. Uh, they were definitely more of an experimental band. And then this becomes this, you know, wor- worldwide success and, and the most ex- uh, accessible album. Uh, and they're basically like, how do we top this? And I think this is, I don't know if you found this, Ken, when you were looking through some of yours. It, a lot of these lost albums seem to come right after the big hit album. Yeah. So you do your Sgt. Peppers and then you're like well, what do we do next? You know, and then they scramble and they try to figure out what's going on. It's usually something experimental that goes horribly wrong. This is no exception. Uh, it's called Household Objects because their whole mission was to record an entire album without instruments. It was oh, wow. with just household objects. They were using wine glasses, hand mixers, rubber bands strapped across tables, um, newspapers that they would like rip. Uh, they would fry things and like use like a frying pan and like this the sound of like, you know, you know, boiling water, you know, that type of thing. And uh, they worked on it for a while. And Ted, do you want to take a guess how well it went? <laughs> the frying or the album? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a culinary expert. The, the album uh, sucked, would, but the eggs were delicious. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I would say uh, likely, likely a disaster. Yeah, it was it was pretty much a disaster. Now, and and I should say th- th- this wasn't their 
just an idea they came up with right after Darkseid. Like it goes back to like you know back to like uh, Piper of the Gates of Dawn and some of their early stuff where they would do experimental things where they would in- incorporate some of those sounds and they were kind of like let's go back to do this. And later, I think it was Nick Mason was kind of like, yeah, we really didn't have any song ideas. We didn't know what to do. So it was almost like a stalling tactic. And like, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to do this, you know, and just like, you could just see them coming in there. Like how, you know, like just, just like how ridiculous, you know, like, well, you know, you know, what if a buck and a spatula, you know, was your drums, you know, and like that's what they're just like, let's, <laughs> let's try to, can you imagine you you've know, got like Dave Gilmore is one of the best guitarists who ever lived. And it's like, yeah. well, today you're going to be playing the, the blender. Yeah. And he's going to, yeah. man, because our last album went so well, <laughs> we're going to give up yeah. all of the things that we've been working our entire lives to master. And, and my favorite part was it wasn't like they went to a barn somewhere where they have this like private recording studio and they're like, we're going to reinvent ourselves and make a statement. They were li- they literally spent apparently weeks at Abbey Road Studios with Alan Parsons trying to like figure out how to cut newspapers up to make it uh, like, <laughs> like a, a, a percussion sound. I mean, this is what they were, uh, you know, uh, with all due respect. What a bunch of assholes. I mean, really, with with all due respect, you uh, know. When I was reading that, it made sense to me. I was like, oh, this is why punk became so big. Like, all of these 60s bands had just become so self-important and bloated and pretentious. It's like, it, it had to go completely the other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, but yeah, like, th- this was like a long time coming, too. Like, it wasn't just that, like I said, like, they started, like, they would do stuff on stage. Like, back in 1969, apparently had this composition called Work where they would literally be like sawing wood and boiling kettles on stage, like for, for sound effects. Like they would do this on stage. Like they were like two packs of marshmallows short of being the blue man group. Like that's what they were <laughs> like. Pink Floyd it's, was this it's close. A good th- it's a good thing. It was manual work and not like, uh, like accounting. You know, yeah. like just, just sitting there adding. I'm not really hearing. I'm not hearing anything. <laughs> can you pre- can you press harder on the calculator? <laughs> but could you imagine being a fucking carpenter and like just wanting to forget about your day? <laughs> like I got tickets for Pink Floyd tonight, and then yeah. they're on stage building a fucking barn. Like I could have, yeah. I could have yeah. gotten over. I could have just stayed at work and gotten paid to see this shit. Yeah, too fearless, you know. Or they're, or they're just like yelling, you know, like they're, they're just calling out like names, but they're just like measure twice, cut once, like just giving them advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Use the three eighths. <laughs> like I, the thing is, like if you have if you have some inspiration to go in different directions, why does it have to be the entire album? Why not do like a song or two where you're you're cutting wood or something? You know what I mean? Like. You guys clearly have just stumbled upon something with the success of the last album. But I guess everyone's so suspicious. Sequentially, it, it, it was right after Dark Side. Um, so, so little by little, they were doing this. But then right after Dark Side is when they were like, let's make this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like why are people so uh, like ambivalent about big success, man? You would think, especially at that stage, like you guys have been working so hard for right. so long. You figured some shit out. Yeah. Why make the whole album? Like, like I said, maybe one or two songs you could make a case for like playing around, you know? Yeah. And they actually did that in 1970. I think it was, uh, it was Adam Hart Mother, their album. They had a track called Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast, 
which featured their roadie Alan Styles frying eggs and bacon. And it's like, that's exactly what you said, Ted. Like, like, yeah, throw an album, throw a song on like that. But we don't need, we don't yeah. need the greatest hits of that. Yeah, well, you know, it's almost like, you know, how like the Beastie Boys with sampling or with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of hip hop in general. Uh, they would do like these skits, uh, Wu-Tang yes, Clan, yeah. they do skits in between, you know, and that, that kind of stuff is funny and weird and different, you know, so like something like what you're talking about, I think that if it works, it can really be like interesting and, and memorable, you know, but yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, I guess that's the elusive trick is that it, it actually works. It's the old, uh, it's what I miss. You might've brought this up, Ken. Somebody did recently about missing, like, you don't really have CDs anymore, like the lost track where you, yeah, like, yeah, where you there would be like 10 minutes of silence and then you get something weird and, you know, crazy that, that comes on that, that would be like 14 year old Chip Chantry would think it's the greatest thing in the world. Yes. Um, yep. So uh, one of the lost albums I looked at, I just think this oh, is... Oh, and by the, oh, by the way, sorry, real ahead. quick, before you do that, I, I will say, I want to say that in, I think it was 2011, they, with like re-releases of Dark Side and then Wish You Were Here, of course, which is the next album that they went on, they released two tracks from what they sort of put together. And it, it wasn't, it was never a full album, but uh, they released Wine Glasses, uh, which was actually used, if you listen to the beginning of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you hear this like this femoral kind of noise and it's actually them you doing like the wine glass trick you know with t- tons of wine glasses so you can hear that but then there is a, a, another track that they released called the hard way which is has a really cool bass line which i think is a rubber band bass line and it actually is a pretty cool track so uh so you can go out there so if you go to youtube or wherever you can listen to those two tracks on it but uh luckily they shelved it and went to uh went to wish you were here so yeah that's been- that um, so one of the ones I looked at, I just think this is funny just based on who it is. I, I, I didn't like track down any of the music or anything, but, um, in the late seventies, Paul McCartney went to his label with a double album called, uh, hot hits and cold cuts. And it was, um, a couple non-album singles filled with a bunch of stuff that he had done on his own that had never seen the light of day. And the record label passed. They were like, we don't, we don't want to put out something called Cold Cut. We don't want a double album of stuff that you haven't released. And this is post Beatles, post Wings? (laughs) This is late 70s. Yeah, this is the late, like the Beatles weren't that far over. This was the late 70s. Some fucking record executive made the decision that they didn't want a double album from Paul McCartney. That that just blows. Like, you think that guy, I just, I kept picturing that guy like going home and like having dinner and his wife was like, hey, how was work today? It's like, oh, it was pretty good. I told Paul McCartney to go fuck himself, you know? (laughs) (laughs) His asshole wanted to bring me a double album. And she was like, Paul McCartney from the Beatles? He was like, no, the guy from the Wings. Like, what are you talking about? And she was like, you idiot. And she just pulls out Abbey Road and puts it on. She's like, listen to this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think when you get to a certain level of power and status, like, no amount of money is going to give you that, like, real anymore you have to say fuck you to paul mccartney like that's the only thing that can do it is saying to a genius a guy an icon one of the greats of all time uh no we this isn't this isn't doing it for us i think i might just try that sometime like if i'm ever lucky enough to be like like some tv production or something like that just backstage somewhere and i see paul mccartney 
I may just scream at him and tell him to go fuck himself. Just as <laughs> does. And I'm going to be like, and then he's like, excuse me. I'm like, Ted Alexander told me to say that. I just wanted to, I do feel better. Yeah. If you approached him with a tray of cold cuts and, and just offered <laughs> cold, yeah. cold cuts, or yes. like a double, a double tray. Yeah. yeah. What was the first? <laughs> two, two it, was, it, was, it was hot hits hot and hits. cold cuts. Hot hits and cold cuts. Yeah. I don't Wait, know if which, we get the joke. Which, by the way, uh, Paul McCartney, <laughs> Sir, Sir Paul, as a vegetarian, you would think that cold cuts would not be the greatest name for a title for him. You'd think he wouldn't want to be promoting that. <laughs> yeah. Unless they were like tofurkey, uh, vegan based. Threw, yeah. You think that I like how I just can't get over telling Paul McCartney, we don't want your double album. Just take a chance on it. I mean, like, what's the worst that could happen? Even if you have a a flop, a a Paul McCartney flop, it's probably going to do better than most of the shit you put out, right? Right. Um, And then I read, and then like in 1981, he went back to the record company with the idea again, and they were still like, nah, I don't think so. So With it the never same, the same idea or, or yeah he, he was it? like he was like oh he was like maybe like maybe he took it to somebody new or he was like let's just revisit this I think there's still something viable he was, here he was in therapy for two years I'm, I'm Paul McCartney man yeah you know, it took him t- two years to get the right I'm going back I'm gonna march right back in there and I'm gonna <laughs> pitch the same exact fucking thing <laughs> Linda McCartney was probably like maybe maybe they were just having a bad day that day. Yeah, oh, you're yeah. you're Paul McCartney. You're a fucking Beatle. Of course, they're going to want your album. Or, could you just imagine early '80s disgruntled Paul McCartney just flipping through the radio? He's like, "There's a fucking song on about red balloons. There's 99 of them, and they don't take what I have to say." <laughs> right. Yeah, man. Um, you have another one, Paul. Uh, Paul <laughs> Chip, which is my real name, at, at, actually, which is. My God-given name, which uh, works. Uh, I, I don't think we can do this episode without, and I don't want to get into it too much because we've talked about these gentlemen before, uh, but maybe the most famous lost album of all time or your shelved album is a Smile by the Beach Boys, which, again, one of my favorite groups of all time, the Beach Boys. Again, it was the Pet Sounds follow-up. It's their big album, Pet Sounds. Of course, although it did have mixed reviews at the time and was you know, a, a definite departure, it was one of the most brilliant albums of all time. Uh, in 1966. So this was supposed to be a 12-track concept album follow-up. In the meantime, they had done, so they had Pet Sounds, and then they released Good Vibrations, which was, I believe, the most expensive single ever, you know, done with all these different movements and all that. Uh, But it was going to be very Good Vibrations-esque. And the the way the way that Brian Wilson and of course this is right his in his to like descent into into madness him and uh, Van Dyke Parks who was his collaborator they were going to make this concept album and Wilson called it a teenage symphony to God so that was what the promo was for it, a teenage symphony for God which is putting a lot of pressure on your new album the bar yeah. is high yeah yes. yeah this but it's is- also like. Who's he marketing that to, to like, I'm not saying it's not a great album, but like, I feel like the marketing in there, it's kind of like if like 15 years ago, you were like, like, what if Alexander Hamilton rapped? And you're like, no, thanks. Like, no, (laughs) I I don't think so. And also just with the fact that it's the Beach Boys, right? It's like, yeah, our next album is the Symphony to God. Aren't you the guys that were like singing about cars? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you do an an ode? Yeah. Yeah, Like a a Mustang? Why don't you get your T-Bird back from your daddy before you go writing symphonies <laughs> to God? <laughs> right. uh, 
By the so, way, yes, just, so- just chip real quick, just on your yeah. on your Hamilton point. Just uh, I remember when my dad first heard Hamilton, he got the soundtrack, and I was at his house, and he was like, "Kenny, you have to listen to this. It's amazing. There, it's people rapping, but it's rapping about American history, like slavery, and and you need to hear this." And he played it for me, and I was like, "It's all right." I was like, "I, I guess if this is what you're into, you need to hear some Public Enemy because it's like the same thing." <laughs> And I played him like 30 seconds of Public Enemy. He made me turn it off. And I was like, you really only like one very specific kind of rapping about history. Yeah, I, I almost felt like Hamilton was uh, like a social, st- the cool social studies teacher. Yeah. That's, that's you know, the vibe of, of what that rap wise, what they're serving up. So it's, it's funny that your dad would, would like it. <laughs> But uh, Ted, what you did this is this is why what you did was smart. You just dropped the lost album. You didn't spend fifteen years talking about it because yeah. there's no way there's no way to live up to those expectations. No, uh, I mean, like I the alternate title was uh, "Joking with God," <laughs> but I, then I thought that's you know that's maybe a little too lofty. Um, no, this was, but it was something in the back of my mind for a long time because, you know, as a comedian, you really want to, for better or worse, document each stage of your career. And this was a long stage, like 10 years. Yeah. And then, even, like I said, adding those tracks that, that were even prior. Um, so it winds up being like representing about 15 years of like almost half of my career. So uh, I was happy that you know, I, I finally had the time to sit down and, and go back and listen. Um, it's, you know, which is kind of arduous to, to do, but it, well worth it because there were so many things, uh, even like you were talking about things that would pop up like uh, Tiger Woods. I, I did material on Tiger Woods and here we are, you know, uh, probably close to 20 years later and he's, he's in the news as much as ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um uh, so yeah, so so basically, like it, it just never got released. They, the Beach Boys, ended up releasing "Smiley Smile" the next year, which was sort of like a pared down version of that, and uh, and which got mixed reviews anyway. So really, it just kind of sat uh, for for years and years. And then in two thousand four, Wilson and uh, Van Dyke Parks they arranged a version of "Smile" for a concert tour, which I ended up seeing with my family, which was great. They took it on tour, and then they turned it into a solo album. Uh, and he said it was a lot different from the original. It just like wasn't the same. But then in 2011, they did release the Smile Sessions, which is great. I, I do enjoy it. I mean, it's definitely hit or miss. There's some great tracks, and then there's some crazy tracks uh, on there. But uh, it won Best Historical Album at the Grammys in 2000, I guess, 12. And uh, but there, there are a lot of really good tracks on it. Heroes of Villains is on it. Cabin Essence, Wonderful is a great song. Surfs Up uh, and Good Vibrations is kind of lumped in as part of that too. So. Uh, so yeah, that's the uh, that's the Smile album. Don't you guys think, in a way, that Lost albums uh, it almost works in its favor? Like, if you have anything that is a departure or experimental or weird, then once you have hardcore fans, right? You know, I mean, obviously you have to accumulate those, but once you have fans, people love to dig back and listen. Like, oh, this is weird shit, or this is interesting, or I can hear pieces of where they were going you know what i mean like kind of the detective work of once you love a band you'll dig into anything they do yep oh absolutely i mean and that's what just drives me crazy uh, of like it's not even a lost album but just paul mccartney paul mccartney would have sold millions of those albums 
Right. He just, they would have loved that. But yeah, but you're exactly right. Like I would love to go back anymore and like find some of my favorite artists and just be like, oh, they have put out this weird thing, this bootleg, whatever it is. As a fan, you're going back and listening to it. Well, yeah. So Ted, you lead me into the next album. That's actually a really good point. What you just said, because um, one of the lost albums I was looking at was by Prince and Prince has several legendary prince has more lost albums than like the monkeys had albums like he's got (laughs) um he's got a lost one uh with the revolution which uh you know this music's famously locked up in vaults and now that his family's in charge i'm sure we're going to start seeing a lot of it but the most interesting prince one i saw was an album he recorded called camille which um he sped up his vocals and sang in a high falsetto the entire album and they were going to release it like it was a female artist and it was and they weren't going to tell anybody it was prince and they weren't going to like promote it they were just going to put it out in the marketplace and see how it did and i think that i think it's sort of a testimony to how big prince was at that point where it's almost like, remember when like Stephen King, no matter what he wrote, it would just fly off the shelves. So he he started writing under a, a pseudonym like Richard Bachman and those books did absolutely nothing. I think Prince wanted to see if, um, I don't know why it didn't say why he, I guess he just ultimately decided it was too experimental or not to release it. But one of the tracks ended up on, um, oh, what was that double album? Um the track Hot Diamonds and Pearls? Cold Huts? <laughs> <laughs> was it Diamonds and Pearls? No, 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 no. It was, it was uh, in the early 80s. It was um, Sign of the Times. Um, but one of the tracks, If I Was Your Girlfriend, made it on. And I did always wonder why Prince was singing If I Was Your Girlfriend. And now it turns out that he, he was going to do a whole album as a lady. think is really interesting and he wrote a bunch of songs for female singers like i did do you know if they came from that like isn't nothing compares to you that that's prince right Mm -hmm. and uh i feel for you shaka khan yeah yeah uh was eternal flame him not eternal flame i think manic monday manic monday was him okay yeah 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 he did and uh gosh was it who's who's the um my baby takes the morning train. Oh, Sheena, Sheena Easton. He didn't he write a tune for her. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, it was like kind of a more raw. Like they were trying to make make her more sexy and stuff. I think Prince. Or are we confusing it. her with Sheila E? It's possible, but I don't. <laughs> I I'm I'm gonna Let I'm gonna check. say that I'm right. Uh, but I know. Yeah, I know he Sheena did. Easton he did that the nine to five. Yeah, the morning train song. Yeah. 
Right, right, right. No, I know Shana Easton saying that. Oh, yeah, wait. Prince Shana Easton comes right up. Okay. Well, we'll... I'll find it somewhere. Che- was it che- something about Cherry Love? Or cherry? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Easton appeared in Prince's concert film, Sign of the Times, which she's saying... I don't know. It's on there somewhere. But you're right. She, he, he did work with Sheena Easton. And they did, they did try and sex her up a bit. Yeah, yeah. They've been trying to do that for me for years. And it's just, uh, it doesn't work. Don't give it doesn't up. Work. Don't give up. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Chris had a good point. Just put that Boy Scout outfit back on. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. Growth spurt. Whatever works. <laughs> um, do you have another one, Chip? Uh, you know, real quick, I'll, I'll do one. Um, uh, again, one of my favorite artists, Marvin Gaye, had, uh, he did the album, it was called his divorce album, uh, 1978's Here, My Dear, which kind of saw him in the midst of a lot of uh, drug issues, financial issues, his, his marriage, of course, is collapsing. Uh, it didn't do really well, so he's like, I'm going to kind of try to reinvent myself. And of course, it's late 70s, so he's like going to go full on disco. So it's Marvin Gaye's full on just I'm going hardcore disco album, which I feel like so many obvious, so many artists did at that point, And a lot of it didn't work. And uh, it just so he was going to release an album called Love Man. So that the album called Love Man was out. There's like a track or two that's been out there. Uh, there's a one called Ego Trippin' Out, which is a really hardcore uh, disco song, which uh, which is very interesting to listen to. Uh, eventually, he scrapped it and he just. He didn't want to deal with it. And then uh, uh, he released part of it. Some of the songs were reworked for 1981's In Our Lifetime, which was his next album, which I think was his second to last, his penultimate album. Uh, but uh, he kind of tried to drop the, uh, the disco out of it. There's, so there's two things about that. that um, are so the Divorce album that you uh, talk about here, my dear, this was really interesting because it almost felt like it was out of a Seinfeld episode. So he was married to Barry Gordy's sister Mm -hmm. and he's divorcing Barry Gordy's sister. And the judge rules that all the sales all like, or half or a huge chunk of the profits from your next album are going directly to uh, Anna Gordy. Mm -hmm. And he puts out, on purpose, a, a double album which doesn't sell as well, and puts and saves his better songs for his next album. Like he purposely put out an album that he knew wasn't going to sell well, <laughs> and he calls it "Here, My Dear" because it, like, he should have just called it like "Just Fucking Take It," you know? Like, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was, it was an anger. If you listen to the album, it's it's full of heartbreak and you know uh, despair about your marriage busting up, but it it was done in a in a pretty angry, uh, vindictive fashion. He he did it so that it on purpose wouldn't sell so well. I think it was the, I, don't, I could be wrong about this. I think the lyrics were uh, from the court transcripts. It was just reading <laughs> set, set to a melody. <laughs> but I always wonder with those kind of things, you know, the way kind of one thing leads to another, uh, like, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but did that disco album or this phase in any way contribute to maybe the producer he worked with? I don't know. Uh, because sexual healing came right. in the early 80s, right? Mm-hmm. So who knows, like, 
the, the way things piece together, even some shitty project can that. Yeah, can, that's what can lead to some brilliance down the road. Right. You, literally, you're experimenting, you know, you, your experience like, let's try this. And this new sound turns into something. Completely it's different. it's like these these lost albums get harvested for parts and, and right. you you end up hearing bits and pieces of them somewhere down the road. Right. He, uh, right. Uh, Marvin Gaye is another lost album. They actually just released it not that long ago, but it was the follow up to what's going on. And it was another it was another kind of hard charged political statement album. And uh, I think it's called You're the Man. And, and they, I think they just released it in 2018. And I, I was listening to it the other night. It's a great album, but um, he was fighting with Barry Gordy. They, they released the single off it. It didn't do great. And um, Barry Gordy didn't want to put out another political album, which again just shows you like this dude just put out what's going on, which is considered an absolute masterpiece and, and sold through the roof. It, it kind of um, saved Motown at a time when, when Motown records weren't selling. And then you still have a suit in charge telling you that, you know, your follow-up's no good. So yeah, it's not Mar- just a suit, but also your, your wife's dad. <laughs> 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 that hurts, man. <laughs> uh, Ken, do you want to do, uh, do you have, uh, one more? Yeah, I have another one. This one is, this one is, to me, this is such a shame that this never came out. And you can go online and you can hear demos from it. But um, in the early 90s, Chip, you and I were just talking about this off air yesterday. In the early 90s, Mick Jagger was recording uh, his new solo album. And he got together with Rick Rubin to produce it. And um, there was uh, really not much more than like this really hot bar band called the Red Devils. They were, they were a blues band. But they had, they were known, I mean, they just played, they had like a house residency at some small club in Hollywood. But they were, they were like this explosive live band. And Rick Rubin suggested to Mick, you should, you should hook up with, come, come watch, come watch them. Because they, they sound like the Stones did when you guys were starting out. And Mick was inspired enough by what he saw that he hopped on stage with them that night and they did a couple songs and then Mick agrees to go into the studio with them and see what comes out of it. Now, this part blows my mind. So they book a 14-hour recording session and in one 14-hour session, they record 13 songs. Like they And Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin says... They've got the album in the can. And, and as we know, and just, just so you know, Ted, if you're not, uh, 13 songs in, in that short time, uh, that's known as a Jagger Dozen is what that is. So just, <laughs> just so we're, we're all on the same page. I want to know what they did with that extra hour. I mean, why I know, yeah. Come on, get the 14th in. Yeah. yeah. Slackers. Get some, um, get some rubber bands and some tea kettles and let's make something happen. That's right. That's right. So... Um, the the demos sound great. Rick Rubin is trying to convince Mick this is the album, put this out, and then Mick decides that it's you know that it's he, he feels like it's an album that's looking backwards, and he wants to look forward and put out a, just a more contemporary rock album. 
and Mick scraps the entire thing and records this album. It's actually, a, it's, it's of, not that this is saying much. Mick's solo career is pretty terrible, but this was the one album of his that was pretty good. It's called Wandering Spirit. But he, he shelved this whole thing, and to this day, um, only one of the tracks has seen an official release uh, on, on Mick's Greatest Hits album, which is also pretty funny that he put out a Greatest Hits album with um, when he has no hits. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, the song's called Checking Up on My Baby, but it, you, can, you can go on YouTube and you can, you can hear the demos and, and the... It, it's incredible. Like you can tell it was all recorded live in the same room. You know, it wasn't people going into different booths, uh, laying down tracks. It was just live. Uh, every song was done. I think they said no, no more than three takes. And you, you wonder why it, it was an amazing, amazing, it's all just blues covers. And besides the fact that, you know, we don't get to hear it, uh, you know, you think Mick Jagger just, what's it to him? But these poor guys, the Red Devils, are like just yeah. like calling their their mom at yes. home back in Iowa and be like, "Just, just recorded. You should. Do you want to know what I did for the last fourteen hours?" And it was like, "I'm going to be the biggest thing. I'm going to make some money. I just recorded an album with Mick Jagger." And everybody's like, "No, you didn't." And he's like, "Just wait." And then <laughs> just just wait until nineteen years later when one of the tracks surfaces on a greatest hits album. Yeah, yeah, they probably thought they were going on. Tour. I didn't even think about that. They were probably like, "We just recorded an album. We're going to be touring with Mick Jagger. Like we're, we're the new Stones. Yeah, yeah. we're we're not going to be in a van anymore. We're getting jets." Ken Krantz yeah. is going to talk about it on his podcast someday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whole nine yards. I mean, isn't it nuts though when you when you think you told the story about uh, of Paul McCartney. And how he creates this thing, and it's the label that says no. And then right. this is the reverse. I mean, these are like the two iconic, yeah. you know, bands that you always hear: the Stones and the Beatles. And then Mick Jagger works with one of the iconic producers of this generation, uh, Rick Rubin, who, who, you know, kind of hands him on a platter, like, here, here's the formula, here's what you need to do, and he nixes it. Yeah, and it's it's so weird that like. The things that have to align for for fucking music, even from the greats, to to see the light of day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. Well, I I mean, on the list, there were so many on the list. Like David Bowie has has a lost album where um, uh, called Toy, where he was going to re-record some of his really old songs that nobody knew, like pre Space Oddity era. And um, he was going to record them and update them for this was back in the late 90s. So he was going to record them, re-record them. And then it was a bunch of new material also. So it was like a handful of old stuff nobody knew and, and new material. And the record label didn't pass. It was just they had other things to release that year. And they just kept putting them on the back burner. Like, oh, we'll get around to it. And then by the time they were ready to get around to it, he'd gotten fed like i guess bowie didn't hold his attention his own attention for for long periods of time so by the time they got around to it he he left the label and just went to work on a new album but the the album is still out there you, you can you can find tracks of it but even like can you imagine being david bowie and having the label be like you know third eye blind has a new album coming out we'll, we'll get to you at some point <laughs> Yeah, and right. And when was this? Like, what what era was this? Late nineties. Late nineties. Okay, yeah. Yeah, nobody's nobody's safe, man. Doesn't matter who you are. I mean, you're, we're naming like some of the biggest names 
Brian Wilson. I mean, these mm-hmm. are these are all icons. Yeah. Well, but no. Brian, but Brian Wilson, that that wasn't that was just him not putting it out, right, Chip? That oh, wasn't, wasn't like the label. Decided? Yeah, I mean, they never actually finished it one hundred percent. I mean, it just that was sort oh. of his. You know, when you know when he he you know with his schizophrenia, and then it just kind of he sort of abandoned the sessions, yeah, for, you know, for the most part. And well, then they not to make they a, schizo- a schizophrenia joke, but he could play both parts. He could play the artist, and then he he is the suit. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. This is never going to skill. <laughs> yes. Step into my sandbox. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Just step over the ostrich into my sandbox. <laughs> Um, do we have time for one more, Chris? Or we got you got what you got any more on there, Chip? Um, I just uh, just the, the last one I did. I'm just going to kind of run through it real quickly because it's actually a, a bunch of them. Uh, I'm a big Beck fan, and Beck obviously has changed his style so many different times, and you know, from hip hop to folk to country, everything. Uh, I'm just going to go down the list. He had uh, an electronic album from the '90s that's a lot like Aphex Twin and Craftwork, which apparently is amazing. That never saw the light of day. He did, plus he did a double album of solo Hank Williams covers in 2001. Oh, I would love to hear. Would that. be very interesting. He did a whole album with uh, the John Spencer Blues Explosion in 1995, which nobody's apparently heard or you know like hasn't been released too much. It would be funny if Beck also he did an album with the the Red Devils. <laughs> <laughs> These poor guys. <laughs> they just keep recording. <laughs> hey, Springsteen just recorded an album with us. They just, they just keep losing out every time. Uh, and and they probably meant my favorite thing that Beck would have done is there was a couple of rock albums from the 90s from before Odelay and I guess 96 that he said sound a lot like Pavement and Sebado, which are like two of my favorite bands that apparently haven't been released that could be out there sometime. So, uh, uh, there, there was that fire. I don't know if it was, was it Warner Brothers or yeah, it was, was Warner Brothers. Fire yeah, and they're they're that, those are actual lost albums because they yeah, they and, were destroyed. And, uh, but there's rumors that they a lot of those albums still are out there that weren't touched by the fire. But I think a few were lost lost in the uh, fire. But that sounds like there would be a lot of a uh, lot of good material out there. All right. So well, when, yeah. the, when they release the ones from the fire, it's going to be like really. Like really slowed down. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna hear an employee screaming for help in the background. Right. Right. Uh, What what Beck did was he utilized the sound of the flames to create the melody. (laughs) You work with what you have, man. That's that's pure genius. Uh, Pink Floyd started the fire with their eggs, and that brings it full circle. And. Ted, thank you so much for coming on today. I hope you had thank fun. You hope guys. we can get you back for for another episode sometime. I would love to, man. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Jess. Do you do you have um anything you want to plug? I know you said you're in Vegas with uh, Gaffigan. Yep, that'll be August sixth and seventh, uh, and I'll, I'll be doing other dates with Jim going forward through the end of the year. So you can find all of that at tedalexandro.com. And uh, I do my podcast, The Ted Alexandro Show, every Thursday and Sunday. Uh, and Sundays are usually with Eddie Pepitone. We do a, a live stream together. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, you can find that on my website, on my YouTube channel. Okay, great. Chip. And, of course, The, the Lost Album. Yeah, yeah go, listen, go listen to The Lost everywhere. Album. If it's, we can, um, I can, if it's okay with you, I can put some clips of it. into. We can edit in some clips to the episode if you like. I would appreciate it. Yeah, man. That'd okay. be great. Yeah, for sure. Chip, anything to plug? 
Uh, I'm going to be at Good Nights Comedy Club this uh, Saturday, uh, this Friday and Saturday night. Uh, so check that out. And just follow me anywhere at Chip Chantry, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Ken Krantz, how about you? Yeah, I'm going to try and get the episode up uh, by today or tomorrow because there's there's not a lot of edits. Uh, but this Friday and Saturday, I'm at Laugh It Up Poughkeepsie with uh, Bonnie McFarlane. So come out if you're in the area. It's yeah. a hell of a show. Go see it, people. All right. Well, th- thanks again, Ted. We really appreciate you uh, coming on. And uh, congrats uh, with, the, with the newborn. And, uh, and good luck getting back out there, man. Thanks, guys. Hope to see you both in person down the line. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, Ted. Right. Cheers. You got it. Take care. I was walking down the street in New York. I saw a man, a human man, who very suddenly and very urgently began doing bird calls. Three times in succession, this is what I heard. Mind you, I am not an ornithologist. This is just my approximation. We were not in the forest. We were on Broadway. I thought to myself, either this guy is fucking crazy or he knows something. And you can't be sure which it is until it's too late and the fucking birds are already on you. And that guy's running off laughing. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Like, ah, oh, you were right. I should have listened. But moments like that living in New York are what make me think that it's kind of absurd that we have a homeland security strategy that's based around the concept if you see something say something that was definitely something but I said nothing that's what we do as New Yorkers we see shit all day long we say absolutely nothing that's how you get through your day if you had to say something every time you saw something you wouldn't make it five feet out of your home you'd just be saying something saying something saying something That's kind of an awkward phone call to make. Like, yeah, hello, um, I just saw something. There's a guy doing bird calls on Broadway, and you told me to say something. That's too vague a command, too, if you see something, say something. Because, I mean, really, it's kind of a, an invitation to bigotry. Because the subtext there is, you know what we mean when we say something, right? We're all clear on that? Uh, We all know what kind of accent something has, right? (laughs) 